Hey everybody, if you came to the podcast looking for all of the free agency gossip on signings, that podcast comes Wednesday when I sit down with ESPN's Rob Domofsky. Until then, over to you Vince. Let's go to a little life out here. It's a lot of fun. Keep it fun. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at DDDNFL on Twitter. And of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And we have another Lambo special for you this week. We had Gabrielle Valles on last and she kind of gave us a peek behind the curtain. But this is a man who we see all the time. He's a sporting icon, a Packers Hall of Famer, four-time Wisconsin sportscaster of the year and an all-round Packer fan favorite. It's Larry McCarron. Larry, how are you today? Steve, thanks for having me on. Tis the season to have an Irish guy on your podcast. <laughs> well, look, Larry, I want to delve into that, right? So let me hit you with a bit of knowledge. Yeah. The McCarron surname has been around in Ireland for, on record, over a thousand years. Wow. So it originally came from County West Mead, and then it's more associated with Northern Ireland. Now, Larry, you've been around a long time, around the Packers a long time, but you were definitely not a thousand years old. Tell us about your Irish heritage. Is there is that a myth? Are you just a man of mystery here, or are you an awful lot Irish, Larry? No, actually, my mom, and God bless her, she's 90 years old, still living in the same house by herself. My mom got all six of our kids. I come from a family of six kids, uh, four sisters, one brother, and she got everybody for, like, Christmas, one of those DNA things where you can send it in and so forth, and everybody's came back heavy and Irish. It, it varies from person to person, right. which I don't understand, <laughs> because we had the same parents as yeah. far as I know. The I milkman, mean, though, the milkman. A confession, a confession coming, but anyway, <laughs> uh, all of us, all the kids are uh, heavily Irish and uh, a little German tossed in there as well, but uh, we're in the, we're part of, uh, we're part of the Irish heritage and, and darn proud of it. I knew it, Larry. Look, a man like yourself, you have that twinkle in your eye, the Irish wit. You, now, we spoke a little bit before. I also, I also like my beer, Steve. I don't <laughs> know if that's <laughs> Well, look, it's no coincidence you ended up in Wisconsin, Larry. Uh, absolutely no coincidence yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. Like-minded. Yeah, right. Well, Paddy's Day then. I mean, are you going to celebrate a big time over there? Are you, are you the, you know, the chief of the parade in Wisconsin? No, not really. Uh, I might have a cocktail or two or go to one of the uh, couple of Irish pubs we have in town here. Uh, But, uh, you know, St. Paddy's Day, Steve, I don't know how you feel about it. Sometimes that's when everybody jumps on the ship. I mean, jumps on the wagon. It's it's kind of amateur (laughs) night. The real Irishmen, you know, we're kind of giving her on a regular basis. We don't need the holiday to encourage us. Do you know what, Larry? It's jumping on the wagon isn't the problem. It's when you fall off the wagon, that's when the issues start to arise, right? <laughs> but, uh, so, so listen, good, <laughs> you're uh, a larger-than-life character. Um, you're a big man, very big man. But you definitely didn't get that from the Irish side. I think that's whatever other percentage, the 4% German or whatever you have in your ancestry, I think that's where the side came from. We are famously a bunch of leprechauns. I won't disclose my height, Larry, because you'll think less of me, and <laughs> you'll definitely look down in more ways than one. But growing up in Illinois... What was that like for you, Larry? So, as you said, you, you know, you came from a big enough family. Um, was it a pretty raucous attitude at, at home? Was, was sports a big part of your life as a kid? Well, with, with so many people in a small house, okay, mom and dad and six kids, and it was a small house with one bathroom that wasn't very big <laughs> and the lock didn't work. And so yeah. 
the the young years it was kind of a zoo it was a, a matter of survival and uh <laughs> and uh wonderful people and uh and a terrific uh irish catholic family but uh it was kind of crazy because uh we had my mom again got fusser she had six kids mm. from the age of six down Oof. and so i mean it was everybody was little and so as soon as you were out of diapers, somebody else was in them. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, just, uh, if there was like some kind of dessert, you just tried to fight to make sure you got your fair <laughs> share, that kind of thing. It was it was a, just a big family and uh, and not well-to-do in any way, shape, or form, but mm. well-to-do in all the things that matter as far as values and, and, and that kind of stuff, the, the serious stuff. Yeah, because I kind of want to pick your brain because you have a nickname. Uh, it's it's emblazoned across the report that you do for the Packers, and you, I've you know I've seen countless. Because look, we watch your videos all the time. I feel like I know you when you don't know me, which must be a freaky feeling for you. Um, people calling you by your first name, but you know you have a really really strong work ethic. Did that come from your dad, your mom, from your parents, Larry? Or is that just you know? Can you explain just why you're so driven and why you had so many consecutive games in the pro game and were so tough? Well, I it's hard to say, Steve. I, I think everybody's a product of their upbringing and their environment. So if I do in fact have a strong work ethic, uh, sometimes I don't know how strong it is. I, I'm as lazy <laughs> as the next guy, but if I do have anything positive in that regard, you got to credit your family, your upbringing and that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I, I think I was fortunate in the sense that nothing was really handed to me. I was, yeah. they don't even have 12 rounds of the draft anymore. And I was a 12th round draft choice and, and certainly not a lock to make the team. And, and so I had to fight for what I got and I'm glad I did because I, I think it shapes you, it forms you and so forth. But any credit goes as far as work ethic and values and things like that. I got to go straight to my parents and, mm. and start from there because that's where it all begins. So work ethic is one thing, but, uh, you know, measurables and, and you know, your, your physical size, you were a big guy. Were, was, did that start as a, as a kid, Larry? Were you always the biggest kid? And, and when did you realize that football was not only going to be a pastime, but something that you could actually make a living in for a while? Well, Steve, I was I was always one of the taller kids in mm. class. Uh, on the skinny side, I would say, uh, like when I was a uh, freshman in high school, I think I was 151 pounds, but I was over six feet already. But yeah. uh, so I, I, I wasn't the thickest guy, but I was I, I was blessed with some pretty decent height. And I think it was when I was a freshman in high school, I realized some things about football. Uh, that God blessed me with some ability. Mm -hmm. I mean, some things about the game came a little easier to me. And at that point, I thought, boy, it would be cool if if I could if I could play in college, if if I could even go beyond. And and I didn't know if that was realistic uh, at all. But I thought, boy, that'd be cool. And so I think I was very fortunate, Steve, in the sense very early. I had a vision, a goal, whatever you want to call it. I had something to shoot for, and I was, I was pretty serious about getting it. So I, I worked pretty hard at it. But uh, like uh, I think it was the grace of God that says, here, I'm going to give you something to shoot for. I'm going to give you that goal fairly early so you can establish priorities and so forth. Like when you're in high school, you know, what are you going to do, horse around or work out? When you're in college, what are you going to do? 
go to the bars or work out, that kind of stuff. And so I, I had something, uh, I had something to hang on to fairly early and, uh, through no, uh, through no fault of my own. I just think it was a, a gift. And, and so fairly early, I, I had that goal. Didn't know if I'd have a chance, but I had that goal and I was willing to work at it, Steve. Yeah, and I mean, from it seems from, you know, and again, a bio doesn't come to life when you read it about you, you know, I mean, the, the sort of wealth of history that you had. But Bart Starr famously called you a player's player and a leader. And you seem to show that from an early age, right? Because you actually co-captained some of your earlier teams. Did you co-captain them, uh, Larry, on the offensive line? And I suppose that's a question in itself, right? Why offensive line and not kind of the sexy positions like wide receiver or, or quarterback? <laughs> Steve, I wasn't good enough. If I, <laughs> if I was athlete, if I was athlete enough to play wide receiver or quarterback, I probably would have. But my uh, skill position days ended at grade school. When I was in grade school, I, I played a little backfield. Mm. Uh, I played some tight end. Uh, and during high school, I played a little tight end uh, just as a changeup. But uh, I just wasn't athlete enough. And so uh, again. Uh, I was going to be one of those guys with my hand in my dirt, uh, mm. you know, found that out at a relatively early age and just stuck with it and uh, worked at it. And as you said, 12th round pick uh, went into the NFL. What do you remember uh, from those days? Because, I mean, you get onto the team and you're not a lock to even make the team, right? And you say that you had to work for it. Um, that it must have been so different back then than it is now there was less of the glamour i mean i guess the wages weren't all the best back then either does that stand out in your mind as kind of a stressful process for you well no uh it was stressful steve just trying to make the team Mm -hmm. i mean like uh it was going to be it was going to be close uh you don't i've always thought steve that uh low round draft choice have to prove they can play while a first round draft choice has to prove he cannot. <laughs> yeah. And there's a big difference. And so I went to camp just hoping for the best, took it day by day. And uh, fortunately I, I had coaches that uh, liked my attitude and had the patience to let me turn that attitude into performance. And uh, it was that kind of thing. Uh, like uh, certainly uh I was very thrilled to have the opportunity to kind of hone my skills and, and build my craft. And uh, but uh, it uh, was a case. I'm sure I, there was a debate whether to keep me or not when mm. I was a rookie. And uh, like I, fortunately for me, I didn't hear it going on. But when there was cut downs, uh, like and you could hear the footsteps down the hall <laughs> over at St. Norbert and knocks on doors. I. I got to admit, I had some butterflies a lot of days. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering, were they going to come knocking for me? And fortunately, they didn't. Well, because that was a real fear, right? And I kind of want to pick your brain about the whole rookie and, and going inwards. But it's an important point you raised because by 1978, uh, and Bart Starr was always kind of in that rebuild by the time you got in in 75, up to 83 famously. But in 78, you were only one of four players left on the team with the team that he inherited with Johnny Gray and uh, Richmond George. I didn't know you do your homework. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, so you're only one of four players left, Larry, with Johnny Gray, uh, Rich McGeorge, and Willie Buchanan. So, and and again in that season where, and of course the the age of the team back then it was averaging 25, and you were about 27, uh, 28 at that stage. So you mean you were two years over the cut, let's say. So, but Bart Starr, he he came out and was glowing about you. But 
it must have been tricky for that reason, but also, you know, you, you played under three head coaches um, in Dan Devine, Bart Starr and first Greg. And then, um, you know, the first year that you came in as a rookie, there was three quarterbacks, Paul Hunter, uh, Jim Delgazo and Jerry, Ta- Jerry Tag. Did you look on at that and think, like, everything's a moving target here? I mean, how does anyone keep their, their place? Because you played with Jerry Tag, right, for, for six games of 1974. Then Jack Concanon comes in and then John Hadel comes in. I mean... Oh, man. That, you've done your homework. I, I haven't <laughs> thought about these names or guys in quite a while. Yeah, I, I played with a, a number of guys. And, and generally speaking, uh, they were either at the end of their career mm. or in some cases were trying to establish themselves yeah. and establish a career at the game's most important position. But unfortunately, have we seen, have we, as we have seen, if you don't have that guy, if you don't have a special guy in that role, you're going to have problems. And it was a different game then, not quite the passing game. But again, we, in some of those cases, uh, Jerry Taggy, Jim Delgazo, Scott Hunter, we didn't have that special guy, that special thrower. And so mm. uh, consequently, we didn't have that special team record-wise. And, and then, you know, and, and it's not that I was perfect or anybody else, but again, if you have that special player at that position, you've got a chance to beat anybody. And we just didn't do that for a while, not until we got Lynn Dickey. And how immeasurably hard was it before Lynn Dickey? You know, because, I mean, you have people running around like headless chickens back there. Would you credit them for getting your body beat up as bad as it was <laughs> because you're trying to, you know, hey, hey, Steve, hold off the defense? Steve I'll, be honest. Steve, I'll be honest with you. It was my job to keep their bodies from getting beat up. <laughs> yeah. sometimes, sometimes I didn't do too well at it. I mean, I can remember a good friend of mine to this day is Eric Torkelson. He was yeah. one of our running backs. And sometimes I'd look at his black and blue body in the shower and I think I got to block better. <laughs> and uh, it was it, it was that kind of thing. And no, I never looked at anybody else. I had my job to do, Steve, mm. and it was my job to do it well. And everybody else had their and I and I, and I've always thought that the best thing anybody can do for the football team for the Green Bay Packers is their own job well. I didn't worry about anybody else. I I focused on doing my own job well. And that's not to say I did it well all the time, but that was my focus, and I let the other guys take care of themselves. Yeah, and I, I'm looking at the likes of potential and what just could have been. Lynn Dickey is certainly credited over here with the diehard fans because we have guys over here who used to listen to, uh, you know, military radio because that's the only place they could get the Packers games, and then sure. some of them had a magazine posted to them so they could only read the play-by-play <laughs> in sort of script yeah. form. But Lynn Dickey is sort of credited as being one of those guys who never reached his potential because of all those injuries. Was it difficult to be in a locker room with a guy who, you know, had the star potential but just couldn't stay healthy? Well, I just appreciated, Stephen, this is the honest to God's truth. I just appreciated what he could do. Yeah. And he could spin that ball. Oh, he could throw it. And he is still, to this day, the most accurate long thrower I have ever seen. And he was still a mighty fine quarterback. I mean, those are years, Steve, where offensively we could ring the bell. We were lighting it up. I mean, we had Lynn Dickey. We had James Lofton. We had Paul Kaufman. We had John Jefferson. We had a big-time attack, and Lynn Dickey was the guy throwing the ball. Yeah. And uh, those are the things I focused on. Unfortunately, I think more to your point about struggling record-wise and so forth, I think more importantly, we couldn't stop anybody defensively, but our struggles sure weren't the result of Lynn Dickey or his injuries. 
Yeah. And if you look at your career now, sort of at a distance and what would you, can you pick out a couple of moments that you remember really vividly that kind of stand out as the highlight of your career? I would say team wise, the biggest one was our Monday night game in 1983 against the Washington Redskins. They were the defending Super Bowl champs. We were not, and we played them at Lambeau Field, and we beat them. They had Joe Theismann, John Riggins, Mark Murphy, who you've talked to on your podcast. (laughs) He was playing safety for them, and we beat them at Lambeau Field on Monday Night Football 48-47, and it is still the highest-scoring Monday Night Football game in history. And so collectively, as a team, that was a night for Packer football. Individually, getting fortunate enough to get named and voted into a couple of Pro Bowls, that was my individual highlight. But team-wise, you couldn't beat that win over the Redskins. And I remind Mr. Mark Murphy about it every (laughs) once in a while. I was just about to ask. I hope you do. Uh, it was that game, actually, Larry, that an awful lot of our fans from the 80s, that game made them fans once they saw that game and, really? you know, the reigning, yeah, the reigning Super Bowl cool. champs. Honestly, they we have this thing on the podcast where we get fan of the week and they come on and explain how they became yeah. fans. If they're fans in the 80s, they remember that game. They saw it on Channel 4 yeah. over here in the UK uh, and they're big fans really? because of it. So it's great that you're an integral part of that. That's absolutely fantastic. Oh, and uh, that's terrific that that you still have listeners that saw it. I mean, mm. that remember it because it was a great moment, but uh, even though it was a long, long time ago now, it was a great moment in Packer history. Yeah. And we even have guys, there's one fan that we have and he comes over, we go, we do an annual trip to Lambo, and he was, remembers the ice bowl. Can you imagine that? Oh, really? Mm. Isn't that terrific? Oh, how are you guys, you have an annual trip to Lambeau Field? Yeah, so we set up the fan group about five years ago, and it's just gone from strength to strength. So every year, we try and make it over to Lambeau. So last year was the season opener cool. against the Seahawks, which was just electric. Yeah, well, good. That is terrific. That is terrific. The next time you come, give me a holler so I can meet you, will you? And drink us under the table. Absolutely. <laughs> we, All right. We, we want to we test out Larry McCarran. Um, but look, Larry, you're famously known as The Rock, and... Uh, just looking at your injury history and the fact that if to anybody else they'd be off for a couple of seasons but not you 1980 hernia operation uh, before the season starts yep. you make week one um, it's just absolutely ridiculous uh, is it true that Bart Starr put you in the game and was only you were only going to take you know one snap and then he was going to sub you out and the guy you come on to sub you yep. out you waved him away is that true? No no I mean actually yeah that was the plan I was a few weeks after hernia surgery uh and uh and so uh i jumped in a couple snaps of practice and we were playing the chicago bears the league opener as you mentioned and i jumped in for a couple snaps of practice and kind of hobbled around i was still real sore and the offensive line coach told me to get out of there uh but i was getting closer and uh so the saturday before the sunday game at the team meeting bart star i i had started uh, a number of games. I had some kind of streak going. I don't know what the number was, but uh, it was significant. So Bart Starr says, Hey, listen, uh, Larry is getting close as far as returning, but he's not quite ready. So we're going to put him to keep his streak alive. We're going to put him out there for a play, get him off the field. And then, uh, and then maybe he'll be ready next week to go full time or what have you. So that was the plan. So I go out there and start the game against the bears. 
and and I looked at the you know I looked at the sideline. Nobody's coming out there. And every once in a while, I look at the sideline. Nobody's coming out there. And Steve, the damn game goes into overtime, and oh. I am hurt for certain. <laughs> and I'm still going. And that was the game that Chester Markle fielded his own block field goal yeah. and ran it in and beat the Chicago Bears in overtime. And I think it was my guy. Uh, that kind of penetrated and blocked the field goal. <laughs> but when it happened, when it happened, Steve, I was just so, I was so happy the game was over. I couldn't appreciate the victory. I was just, I physically, I was exhausted and really sore. And I was just so happy that game was over. But that's the story with that one. That was after the hernia deal. That's incredible. Lynn Dickey called you the toughest guy that he ever played with and that anybody who questioned your heart was nuts. So, like, it makes sense that, you you know, because 1980 again, same season, right? You broke your hand and that didn't stop Larry yeah, McCarron, yeah. did it? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, I broke it against the Dallas Cowboys and uh, our trainer, he worked late that night and we figured out a way I could stamp the ball with a big cast on and still not break the quarterback's hands and things yeah. like that. And, and I was able to push it on through. Uh, but, uh, uh, it's, I got my philosophy, Steve, on playing hurt mm. was, Hey, you go out and give it a chance, you yeah. give it a shot. And if you can be effective, then you stay out there. But if you can't be effective, then you come out. And, uh, cause uh, the deal in the NFL is you're not a hero for playing hurt. You're a hero for playing hurt and well. Yeah. So if if you can't play well, then you better get out. But uh, fortunately, I could play well enough that I stayed out there with some of these injuries. But I have to say, Larry, and I'll end the whole injury talk here because I don't want to bring up sort of bad memories for you. But uh, 1983, (laughs) it just shows how tough you are. And I just I really want to get that across to people, just how much just how unbelievably tough you are. Um, You suffer carbon monoxide poisoning. Your whole family does. Right. And you spend that Saturday in hospital but it still doesn't stop you. Is that true? Oh, I like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was out there, but yeah, actually that was the hardest one uh, because uh, actually it was Saturday night. And, and at that time they allowed us to stay home before games. Mm. And uh, it was a Saturday night and we're playing again. We're playing the bears on Sunday afternoon and Saturday night. One of my kids, they were little at the time, my daughter, and she was just a little kid. And she came in, she woke us up, uh, my wife and myself, she woke us up and said, it hurts when I dream. Oh my God. Now that's kind of an interesting way for a young person to say they have a headache. Yeah. It hurts when I dream. And we realized that, you know what, we have headaches too. And so we kind of started sniffing around and, and all of a sudden we realized, hey, you know, this is, this, there's something smelly about this house yeah and so we we got out we got out and we called the fire department and so forth and by that time it's in the early hours of the morning at say five six o'clock in the morning so i got a game at noon so like why my wife sorted things out with the kids and the fire department and the emergency people and got out of the house and and found a place to stay i went to the hospital and I told the guy what the deal was, and he said, yeah, you got carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my God. He said, you know, he kind of checked me. He said, you got carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. And I said, I got a game at noon. I got a game <laughs> at noon. What can you do? He goes, we can pump you full of oxygen. Oh so that's God. what they did. 
that's what they did. So normally I was one of the first guys to the stadium. Mm. Well, I came there, like I got to the stadium right before we were supposed to go out to warm up and guys are going, where the hell were you? What were you doing? <laughs> and I kind of told them yeah. and uh, I didn't really tell the coaches. I didn't really tell the training staff. I just got dressed and went out and warmed up. And that was really difficult because the uh, carbon monoxide kind of sapped your will. Yeah. It was very difficult to play. And uh, by halftime, I had run around enough and got enough oxygen flowing and, and blood flowing. Mm-hmm. By halftime, I was all right. Yeah. But getting to halftime was really difficult. Because uh, like I said, the hard part, it kind of sapped your will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made you feel just uh, really scuzzy. So, yeah, that was, a, that was another time where the, the good Lord smiled on me and let me get through a game. But the, the good Lord smiled on you and made you live. That's incredible. So that 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 was <laughs> fatal, Larry, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I well again the whole family. It was fortunate. Uh, but uh, my daughter woke up, so she woke us all up. So it's it just one of those things that worked out uh, the best it could. That's amazing. Um, but let's talk about 1984 really quick. And I know I'm probably you know keeping you way too long. But the game against. The LA Rams, Lambeau Field, uh, November 18th, you win 31-6. Am I right in saying that that was your last game in green and gold because the following week was the first time that you missed the game against Detroit? Um, a loss, they yeah. came back and won the game yeah. in the dead after a sort of a you know, rah-rah speech from their coach, which ended a 162-game streak. Did you ever play again after that? And w- no, was it a pinched I nerve, did. Larry? See, what, what happened, the... the uh... Uh, the LA game that you mentioned, mm. you know, I think it was like in November, uh, the LA game you mentioned was actually in Milwaukee when we used to play there. Right. And I hit the ground and kind of twisted my neck in a funny way. Mm. And, uh, like I noticed it was weird and I actually finished that game, but it was actually kind of weird. I, I, I started getting a, a pain in my neck, shoulder area and that night i was playing pool with some of the guys mm. and i couldn't control the cue you know we were out and having a couple of beers celebrating the wedding and i couldn't control the cue very well mm. and so i went to the doctor said you you know you damaged some nerves which he said you stretched some nerves in my brachial plexus area and it didn't really get any better mm. during the week and uh by and it was a short week we were playing the lions on Thanksgiving Day, so it's a short uh, week, and uh, Thursday comes real quick. So I got out there, and I really, I really couldn't snap the ball. Not to the, you know, I'm talking about. I'm not talking a deep snap, just to the quarterback. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I hadn't practiced all week. I couldn't do it with any authority. Mm. So, and uh, when I sat down to get taped, my arm was still just shaking around and things like that. And so the trainer, he knew I was having some issues with it. Dominic Gentile, and it's the only time he ever encouraged this uh, in my whole career, and this uh, was my 12th season. He said, he said, if that thing isn't right, he said, don't go. And that's the only time he ever encouraged me to sit out uh, because, you know, I was having a nerve issue. So so I I sat out that game, first game I missed, and I never played again because by the time the next preseason rolled around, they didn't pass me my physical, but the nerve – had come around somewhat, but it was still not right. Yeah. And so they uh, did not pass me in my physical, and that was it. But I, I was fortunate enough to play 12 years, and uh, it was a great ride. So uh, that's just the way it goes. 
And am I right in saying Gentili was actually the man who created the contraption for your hand when it broke in in uh, yes, 1980? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, Dominic Gentili, yeah, yeah, very creative trainer. Now, yeah. Very, uh, he was a guy that could invent devices. Mm. He didn't go buy them; he invented them, and yeah. uh, very creative that way. And did you know the writing was on the wall, Larry, uh, with that injury? I mean, did you know the next season you weren't going to pass the physical? And, I mean, how did you deal with that in your head, especially after so many consecutive games, so much time playing for the one team? Well, I, what I thought, Steve, was that I, I thought it was getting better. Uh, I thought in time it would be okay to play at least another year. However, at that time, Boris Gregg was going into his second year as head coach. Mm. And I really think he wanted to change the leadership on the team. And uh, a year later, uh, he made moves with Lynn Dickey, Greg Cook, Paul Kaufman. He, uh, he made moves in that direction. And, and I got the sense that uh, he, he was ready, uh, regardless of the injury, he was ready to change the leadership on the team. And and he changed it the next year, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, like, I could, I could sense a little bit of that going on. But, hey, you know, it's uh, never say die. And I thought if, if they give me a little more time, I could probably play. But they didn't give me any more time. And I think part of that was the fact that Forrest wanted to change the leadership on the team. And they had a young fellow named Mark Cannon put in there, mm. did all right. And so that uh, – Hasten my departure. But like I said, it was a great 12-year ride. So your playing career is, is over, um, Larry, but th there's a gap in the bios between, you know, you finishing your career. And I always kind of find that funny that someone's life when it's put on paper seems so simple, but it's it's always 100% of the time it's not. What did you do in between the time of, you know, retiring and then getting that first job in broadcasting in 1988 uh, for WF4V TV. What was the intermittent period like? Was it a bit of a time where you kind of didn't know what you wanted to do or were you always working towards a, sort of a, a career in broadcasting? No, it was strictly accidental. What happened was after, not too long after I was out of football, mm. uh, say in a few months later, uh, I was fortunate enough, Bellin Hospital here in Green Bay offered me a job managing a department and it was kind of the football-y stuff sports medicine physical therapy health promotion programs that that kind of stuff and also there was a fitness center there so kind of uh athletically minded type things that was the connection as far as why have uh, an ex-jock uh, be part of it so <laughs> so i'm managing that and i'm thinking you know i can do this this is kind of like coaching yeah. And, you know, get the troops fired up, appreciate everybody's role in the, in the cause and, 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 and that kind of thing. And I thought this is kind of like coaching. But I realized as a phys ed major, I was probably never going to move up the ladder at the hospital. Yeah. And I'd probably be where I was at forever. And I thought, well, I have more ambition than that. So I left the hospital and my plan was to look for a small business to buy and manage it and coach the folks up and and make a living that way. Well, that sounds pretty good until you try to do it. <laughs> and, and then all the businesses that are for sale, most of them got something wrong with them. And then you got to take a look at that and you got to figure, Hey, could I live this life 24 hours a day? Yeah. And, and I was thinking, and I was having trouble really 
settling on something. And there were some things for sale, some things that might have fit, but I, I was having trouble saying, you know, pulling the trigger. And so this went on for a few months, and I thought, you know, I'm not doing anything, and I'm feeling very useless, mm-hmm. and I got to find something to do before, until I find a business to buy. And and I found out that the WFRV in Green Bay, the television station, uh, let go of their sports guy, and they were looking for somebody. And I had done little TV as a player, just screwing around. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll go and see if they want to hire me, and that would be a good hobby job until I found a real job. Yeah. And and so I went in and I cut a tape, Steve, and it was god awful. It was <laughs> terrible. But the general manager was a packer nut, so he hired me anyway, and I got on the air, and I was god-awful, and the only reason I didn't quit was I didn't want to quit a failure, and fortunately for me, the station that hired me had patience, and so I keep plugging away at it, and uh, one thing leads to another, and suddenly things are all right. And this took a, you know, a few years, but yeah. suddenly things are going okay. And then one thing leads to another. And then I start doing the Packer games on the radio. And one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, I'm still broadcasting. And uh, you look in the mirror and I said, I'm, not, I, I'm a broadcaster. That's what I do. <laughs> but getting into it was strictly accidental. And prom- I promise you, I was just terrible when I started. Yeah, because I, I personally I have experienced that because with doing the Packers stuff over here and it's sort of grown and now we have the podcast. But the podcast is fine because you can record it, you can edit it, you can, you know, put it out there. It's not live. And then I started to do live radio and then I was getting blindsided by questions on live radio. I was going into the studio knocking water over on top of the consoles by accident, you know, because I was nervous. So, yeah. you know, it's all of that stuff into it. But it's a different beast TV, I guess, to your color commentary, which you started in 95 with Jim Irwin and Max McGee. How was that experience getting into the commentary side of things? Was it really odd to... Because there's no doubt that you're an expert in the game, in schemes, and being able to read the game. And I guess part of that's from being on the O-line, right? That you're not in that wide receiver position where you're literally running down the field. You've got your back to all of the action until the ball comes your way. You're in the thick of it, really. But how difficult of a transition uh, was that, Larry? Was it really hard at the start to have to call a play and to give your opinion? And in that dead air time that you need something to say and a stat to spit out or did all of that kind of come naturally to you from being around the team? Well, when I joined Jim and Max in 95, uh, that's going back quite a while. And Jim and Max, I mean, they were part of the fabric of the game Yeah, and that's where all broadcasters want to get. Uh, you couldn't listen to a Packer game without turning on Jim and Max. And it was just that way. And I realized that going in, like the radio station really didn't need a third guy in there. I think the Green Bay Packers wanted a third guy that was kind of more connected to the current team on a regular basis. Jim lived in Milwaukee. Max lived in Minneapolis. And I was up here and I was at practice every day. And I knew who the guys were and things like that, Mm. that I had the kind of knowledge that only daily exposure can give you. So the team encouraged the radio station to add a third party that was kind of rounded a little more. But I knew Jim and Max, they were the real deal. They were the stars of this show. So when I started, I just let them do their thing. My biggest goal was not to ruin 
Jim and Max. They were the legendary Jim and Max. So my biggest thing was stay out of their way, let them do their thing. And then if something was left to be said, I would say it. And I would be more the technical guy. Yeah. Uh, Jim and Max, very, very folksy in their delivery. Uh, people loved them and that kind of thing. And uh, kind of uh, behind the team. And, and I could be, oh, this play worked or this play didn't work. That kind of guy. And then as time went on and, and Jim and Max, uh, a few years later, retired. And I was joined by Wayne Larravee. And uh, then I could, uh, you know, spread my wings a little bit and talk a little more. Uh, but uh, basically, Steve, BSing about football comes pretty easy. <laughs> I've been around it my whole life. I'm around the team on a daily basis. Yeah. I, I, I listen to coaches coach. I watch players play. And uh, so talking about it, uh, that's been easy. And I don't know about you, but I have found radio work to be a little easier than TV. Mm. Uh, TV, the camera never blinks. Uh, you, you can't make a face. <laughs> Yeah. Or if you do, you'll get criticized for it and things like that. I just radio comes a little easier, at least it does for me. Yeah, and you have a wonderful partnership with Wayne Larravee. I mean, was that natural at the start? You know, or did you become like Jim and Max from the beginning, or was that something that you guys had to work out with just time in the booth? I think I think the the chemistry or whatever word you want to use and whatever we have together. I think that just evolves over time. I don't think you can force fit that kind of thing. Mm. I think it has helped from day one that Wayne was a professional broadcaster for a long time. And by that time, when he joined the Packers, I had been a professional broadcaster, using the term loosely, I might add. <laughs> I had been doing it professionally for at least a decade. Yeah. So we both kind of know the score. We know how it works. We know what going to breaks are all about. We know a guy's got to finish his thought in a certain amount of time. And so parts of the job are something you've been doing every day. So I think that helped us. But besides that, it's just working together uh, 20 games minimum, you know, including the preseason, 20 games minimum a year. Yeah. I mean, you just, you know, develop a, a rapport. And uh, I think that's probably the best game, and and I think it's worked out. I think Wayne, uh, hats off to him. He's the most accurate and thorough play-by-play guy in the business, and his delivery has got terrific juice to it. And my word, that voice, I'd kill to have that voice. (laughs) And uh, so he, he brings the whole package to the party. Yeah, well, and an awful lot of people would say that about you, and and Wayne himself from seeing interviews of him talking about you, he's he's sort of saying, you know, Larry just lives and breathes this thing. So whatever Larry says carries so much more weight with it because of your experience, as you said, day to day around the team. Do you keep that up, uh, Larry? Is it? Do you watch every single practice? And would you know every single player on the depth chart? Would you know them in depth and what they're doing at practice and see them transform that into the game? And... With being so full on, and again, sometimes I tell sort of celebrity guests my stories, and then I listen back to it and go, what are you doing? What are you talking about? They don't care. But a little, your story uh, that I got to tell you, Larry, which I know you're probably going to be rolling your eyes like, oh, no, I really don't care, Steve, thanks. But um, I played, I love playing saxophone. So I was into yeah. the jazz and I could pick it up by ear and I was always very good at it. And I went to a musical school 
And, you know, you just you give me a piece of sheet music, I'll read it, I'll play it, I'll learn it off by heart, and then I'll throw the sheet music away and have a bit of a jam. But when it came down to having to do scales and grades and, and do tests in it, it, it really just made it... Uh, horrible for me and i put down the saxophone and it has cobwebs on it now and i don't go near it because i have to do it so you're around the team every day is there ever a party that just wants to put it away for a little while oh sure oh i i like i don't i'm in uh i would say i'm at well 90 some percent of the practices and there's been years i've been at every one sometimes real life issues you get a doctor's appointment or something and i'll miss a practice something like that but i'm at at least 95% of the practices. And there's days I don't get a thing out of it. There's days nothing happened where I learned something about the Packers' approach, the game, or an individual. But there's a lot of days where I learn a little nugget. Mm. That's what's going to happen on Sunday. That's what that means. Or that's how that coach teaches that technique. And I consider every bit of wisdom that I draw from standing around at yet another practice, I've been to thousands of them, that nugget is worth my presence even when it doesn't work out. Yeah. And that's the way I approach it. Now, every day you work the locker room, every locker room availability from July till January, hopefully, and in some cases, February. Hmm. And you work every locker room availability. Is there something earth-shaking being said every time? No, not really. Sometimes it's, it's just kind of locker room stuff or player speak or coach speak. But the fact that you're there all the time, I think in some odd way it matters. Mm. Listening to everybody talk, listen to people, how they view things, what their take on a situation is, I, I think it matters. So I, I make it a point of being there. And that's, that's how my deal works out. Yeah, and it just strikes me, uh, Larry, that you're very personable, you know. I mean, people feel like that they know you and people have grown to to love you over the years and, and need you in their lives for all things Packers. And you must get that being in the locker room with the players and get to know their families and stuff. And there's so much that I'd love to pick your brain about, but I'm very conscious that I've you know had you on the phone for so long. But if we can kind of end it on, on two questions, really, which are the last one at the end, but... Jordy Nelson in particular stands out. So we've made a lot of moves in, in the off season, um, which is, is pretty crazy in free agency, I should say, with you know, with Jimmy Graham or Wilkerson. Uh, but Jordy Nelson leaving, um, you must have got to know him pretty well over the years. Uh, what type of impact does that have on you when you heard it? Were you as shocked as everybody else, or did you see kind of the writing on the wall with this kind of move as well? One point, and I want to make this clear, Steve, when you mentioned uh, being close to the guys and being friends, I always make sure, and this may surprise you, I make sure to keep a professional distance. Okay. Because while I'm a former player, I am a former player. And I try to be careful not to be, or not to try to be one of the guys. Now, the guys are terrific to me, but I always make it a point. This is their locker room. It's not mine. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that makes sense or not. But it's not like, I don't think it's a good idea to try to hang out with the guys. This is their time. And once you walk out of the locker room, you walk out of the locker room. And it's theirs It's theirs now. And it's their time. And it's their day in the sun. And, and I appreciate that. And so 
I just want to make that clear. I'm not hanging out with the guys on a regular basis, and, and I'm not having dinner with Jordy Nelson or whoever, mm. okay? But I do get along with those guys, and I, and I do think they respect me. And uh, something like Jordy's situation, it is very difficult. And what did it surprise me? Not entirely, because I've been around long enough. I've seen some great, great football players eventually see their time in Green Bay end. And we can go all the way back to Brett Favre. Okay, so I've seen the process and I've seen what happens. And so because of that experience, did it totally shock me? No. Was I, wow, I can't believe that just happened. Yes. Mm. I mean, (laughs) it is Jordy Nelson. And the way I have always described Jordy was he has everything you want a Green Bay Packer to be both on and off the field. And he is. He's a wonderful human being, and he's a wonderful player. And he does and goes about his business the right way. And I'm talking every day at practice. I'm talking every game, every snap. He may may not win every snap, but he goes about his business the right way, and he's going to win the far majority of them. And because of those things, Everything I always wanted in a Green Bay Packer, on and off the field, because of those things, yeah, it's a wow when they let them go. However, I've seen it enough that you get over it and you realize that's the business, that's today's business, and very rarely do you get an opportunity to see somebody, a really successful player, both start and finish his career in the same place. And now Jordy's going to Oakland. Uh, he's going to finish up there and make a bunch of money. <laughs> and uh, and I, at least this is the way I envision it. Yeah. And God bless him. And then he'll retire. He'll come back and sign a one-year contract and retire as a Green Bay Packer. And as soon as he's eligible, we put him in the Packers Hall of Fame. And, mm. and, and uh, everybody will shake hands and say it was a great run. But uh, uh, I, I, w- I, wish, I wish beyond wishing that – Players like Jordy Nelson would be able to finish their careers in Green Bay, but in today's game, it just doesn't seem to work out that way very often. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. And I guess we were shocked, but an awful lot of people then, when you think about it in the light of day, um, you know, it can make sense and not make sense for teams, depending on, on how you see it, I guess. But look, I mean, Larry, and I'll end it with it here because you've been so good with your time. I really can't thank you enough. Uh, as I said at the top of, of the show, you are a sporting icon. You're the voice in people's living rooms. You're a Packers Hall of Famer. Uh, you were so good at that career. You moved on to broadcasting and you basically are in the Hall of Fame of, of broadcasting as well, winning that four years with the Wisconsin Sportscaster. There doesn't seem to be a trick that you don't have in the bag or something that you haven't accomplished. So really, you know, what's next for, for Larry McCarron? And, uh, you know, have... Have you ever thought about, you know, what you want to do or would you would you hang up your boots with the Packers? Are you just going to keep on going because you're having so much fun doing it? Well, if I have the decision to make, and sometimes <laughs> you don't, as you know, I'm sure in the media business, I mean, sometimes somebody makes the decision for you, <laughs> uh, especially on the air type people. But uh, Steve, I am 66 going on 67. 
I still like going to work. Uh, I still have a passion for Packer football. And as long as they'll let me, I'll keep doing what I'm doing for the foreseeable future. Uh, like I said, sometimes it's not our call to make, but uh, I really, I really like the game, uh, and I, uh, everything that's good in my life is a direct reflection of having played for the Green Bay Packers. So uh, my ability to work here on a full-time basis and uh, call uh, the stadium, uh, Lambeau Field, the atrium, my my professional home, uh, it's a privilege. And uh, I'd like to keep it going uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, we'll see where that leads us. Well, look, um, if experience and lovability amongst the fans has any inclination on it, you will be Packers president one day. <laughs> but uh, until then, Larry, I, <laughs> I, think, to... <laughs> I, I think Mark Murphy has got that base covered uh, for quite some time. No, I'm just... If if I could be one of the staff here, I'm just fine with that. Well, Larry, thank you so, so much for your time today on the podcast. It's been absolutely fantastic. Steve, thanks for having me. I want to tell you what, a big hello to all our fans over there in Ireland and the UK. Uh, It's people like you that make this franchise special. And a lot of people will talk about its history and Lambeau Field and the Super Bowl trophies, and all of that is terrifically and tremendously special. But it's the fans, it's the people that back this franchise that really make it unique, and you make it, folks like you make it a privilege to play for the Green Bay Packers, to work for the Green Bay Packers, just to be part of the Green Bay Packers. So thank you.